Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Today we are back in Storm of Swords. We're back on Valorarida slash Scraps and Scrolls. We're doing part four of Storm of Swords. So welcome, one and all, welcome all the green folk back to the Isle of Faces. It's very nice to have you back here. I am Sir Buckley. I am speaking to you from cloudy, trying to be sunny England. That's a metaphor, isn't it? And with me also, right behind me, asleep on the bed, is my dear Princess Zelda. So if you hear snuffling or whining or crying, the chances are it's her, it could be me. I'll leave it up to you to decide. We have another five chapters for you today, of course, and I will say they are a doozy of the five chapters. There's some very, very important stuff. Some of the most important stuff we've seen in the whole series, if I'm completely honest with you. But we will get to that. First, a little bit of housekeeping. And item number one on the agenda was last Thursday, I was lucky enough to be invited on a live stream of the In Deep Geek channel. I'm sure you're all aware of, of Robert and, and his work. He puts out videos left, right and centre. There's A Song of Ice and Fire, there's the actual Game of Thrones, the show. He's got The Witcher, he's got Westworld, he's got just about everything. If you're not aware, then please do go and check out because it is simply amazing the amount of stuff he puts out. It's got a very loyal community followers to him, lovely moderators. Everyone was very nice to him, welcoming me, even though, as I'm sure you can imagine, I'm not the most coherent on a live stream. But we were talking about castles for a good hour and a half. Robert was very nice to ask and talk about uh, the castles book, so that was lovely. And yeah, we got in deep on the symbolism of different castles, where we'd want to live, uh, how these castles would actually work within reality, or, or would they indeed? And of course, the future and what might happen with each of those castles, as I'm sure you've heard me bleat on about before. So if you'd like to have a look at that, please do. Please go and subscribe to Robert and maybe look at his Patreon and everything else, because it would be well worth your time if you haven't already. So thank you again, everybody, for having me on and being so lovely about it. Second on the list is, you might remember, last week Last week we had our first of the new pair picks for which POV we would have liked to have had or would have going forward in a Sorghum Ice and Fire. First week it was Roos versus Ramsey. Roos slaughtered Ramsey, absolutely annihilated him. This week a little bit closer. We had Dior versus Jorah Mormon, still sticking with fathers and sons. And I can reveal, as you may know if you've been looking at Twitter, that Dior Mormon won with 66% of the vote. So a little bit closer, but still a clear victory for Papa again. People had some very compelling reasons of why they would choose one over the other. We did get a lot of arguments for Dior as well. I had a really good conversation with at Hale Bopper on Twitter about how she wanted to see Jorah because we could see a lot more of Danny through a different perspective. That's a great point. We also thought about what could happen if going forward we kept Jorah as a POV and eventually Danny and him reunite, reunite obviously. That would be cool to see through Jorah's uh, lens. But also what happens when they come to find John, as I'm thinking we all imagine Daenerys probably will. Jorah's not going to be happy about that, is he? Another potential rival and a son of Ned Stark, no less. That would be very cool to see through his eyes. At Petri Chorfell, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, they also they mentioned that Jorah having flashbacks to the battles, like, like the Siege of Pike, that would be very interesting. Can't disagree with that. They made a great shout about how it would have been interesting to have Gior as a, as a POV, because we don't get that many old people POVs, really, which, which is true. That's a very good point. At Pat Doherty 51 he wanted Jorah as well, and he wanted to know Jorah's thoughts on being hunted by Ned Stark and especially thoughts on Longclaw, again, I would much like that. At Suartem16, again, hope I'm pronouncing these correctly, 
Didn't really want it either, Jorah or Jorah, but said Jorah's probably the worst evil, just could be horrible listening to his inner monologue about how he did nothing wrong and his downfall is all Ned and Lester's fault. Yeah, I can definitely see that would get a lot of self-pitying and the world is stupid apart from me type things from Jorah, yes. But I think at Daenerys Amidala, which is a fantastic Twitter handle, made the best point where she said, I do not want to hear the, the creepy inner monologues about young Danny from Jorah. Sick face emoji, and I couldn't agree more. This is what I was putting into the into the conversation on Twitter. There's no way Jorah should give us a Jorah POV and not have to give us some rather graphic uh, scenes of Jorah thinking about Danny in an amorous way, if you know what I mean. And I don't really think I want that. Does anyone want that? No, I think that might be up there with the Ramsey chapters that no one wants. Gior, on the other hand, as much as I've gone on about him, and I will again today, uh, through these first two books, I would be very, very interested to see his convincing himself that the the watch is okay, that he's done a good job, uh, whilst knowing not really. And as we're going to speak to today, I'd want to see his thoughts on the Fist of the First Men, his memories. We might even get his POV in that chapter. That would be cool. I just want to hear his memories of Aemon, how he got to the watch, his thoughts on Jorah. Does he know anything more about John than he's letting on, as Dovas Fingers hinted at us so long ago? Yes, I, my vote would be for Jorah, and apparently you all agree with me. So, great one, great one this week. And now would be a good time to announce who is pair pick number three for the week to come. It will be announced on Twitter as well, but I can tell you here that pair pick number three, we're going away from Fathers and Sons finally, we're going to shoot for the big dogs. It's going to be a big week. We're going Peter Baelish versus Faris. So I'm sure that will um, inspire some conversation on Twitter. That will be going up later today. Dun, dun, dun. So before we actually get going, some more good news for the Isle of Faces podcast. Somehow we've beaten our fantastic week last week. We had an even better week in terms of total downloads. We beat the single day record that we set last week again just eclipsed it this week so thank you thank you thank you all so much for that sharing and downloading obviously and just having a chit chat with me on twitter please do subscribe and like and rate wherever you get your podcast that would be lovely i very much appreciate that if you'd like to have a look at our patreon that's cool as well signing up at the one dollar level that gets you access to all our patreon only stuff that's coming so yeah just have a look see if you fancy it other than that Please do remember, you can get involved with the History of Westeros community in several places. They take all corners of the earth. Facebook, Discord, Flick, Slack, wherever you want. Just on Twitter, maybe. Old school, I know. Please do continue to encourage and share all the community's endeavours. I know Radio of Westeros have a new episode out, like I said, in Deep Geek. There's lots of people doing lots of work. Please do continue to support each other and share so we can all have a look. But I've gone on enough. I suspect you would agree. So let's talk about, and also it's getting cloudier out there and this dog has to go for a walk, so I need to get on. Let's get to today's chapters. Let me run through what we have for you today. We begin with Catelyn 2 down in the Riverlands. Then we move north to John 2. Back down to King's Landing for Sansa 2. Aya 3. And finally, the real biggie, the real important one, Sam 1. Yes, I'm sure you can't wait to get to that. But let's begin back down in the Riverlands, back down at River Run with Catelyn 2. Now to give you the briefest of overviews, just to remind you where we are in this story, I know it can get a bit confusing, this is the chapter where Rob returns to River Run and he has his girlfriend, or his wife in fact, in tow. But before we get to that, 
We've spoken a lot in this book about the Red Wedding, both in terms of prophecy and foreshadowing such as Patchface last week and the more concrete tightening of the political web in terms of Tyrone writing letters a few weeks ago uh, to Roos and probably Walder Frey as well. But one of the largest parts of this reread is discovering the foundations of, of the Red Wedding through this book and the two before it. But now it is actually here in Catelyn's second chapter the idea first actually enters the world that we should have a wedding. And it comes, obviously, in the POV of the woman who's eventually going to have to witness it and suffer through it. Rob, Catelyn and the Tullys have unknowingly been walking up a big set of stairs for a while now. But it's here that they step onto this horrible slide for the first time, beginning a quick descent to a major surprise at the bottom. And I'm not sure surprise is really the correct word, but that's what I'm going with. Knowing that we're here already, I spoke on the first week of Storm of Swords about how harrowing this how this whole descent of Catelyn's is and we're already here we're already on the track of the Red Wedding even if it does come at the end of the chapter and I'm sure you know the the deal that Aziz uh, takes what notes of mine he can fit in like I take the rest here so you got to my note about the rain and the mood setting but it's also a little nod just to time passing if we remember it's, it's back in Game of Thrones that we got the word that summer has ended and autumn was on its way so now we're we're just seeing that we're in it, basically. It's getting rainy, it's getting rubbish. At the same time, we're getting a handy mirror of nature being glum and humanity not being much better because Catelyn, she has her dad failing. He's on his last legs. Her brother is kind of shunning her. He's just not paying any attention. Remember, she's still essentially kind of a, like a loose prisoner and she's basically just being annoyed. She's very lonely. And it occurs to me that Catelyn has never really had to be alone at any point in her journey so far. She's always had Roderick, Brienne, a 12-man guard or whoever many it is. And she's not really alone now. She's in a castle filled with people. In fact, all the way through this book, she's constantly surrounded. But her loneliness is more palpable than anyone else's. So like I say, the, the point of this chapter is that Rob comes home, or comes to Riverrun anyway. And when he returns, Catelyn is able to put her acute observation skills to work immediately much as she did in a political lens at the beginning of clash of kings she immediately notes that there's different people around rob there's strangers and newcomers and in classic catelyn slash sansa style she focuses on their sigils and heraldry that's the world she knows and even then these people are on the periphery only enhancing her unease even catelyn's not quite sure how, who they are actually there's a question whether this is catelyn's political perception at work why are there strangers around her son? Are these friends or foes? What has she missed out on? Or is it that nature at work again? Some inner feeling that points towards this being another sign that she and Rob will tumble further down the horror slide? Is it just some internal, maternal feeling about what's going on here? For a point in that column, in the premonition column, there's no missing her feelings when Catelyn realises Rob is direwolfless, as he's noted. As Summer noted in Bran's opening chapter last week, the direwolves are more scattered and more hidden than ever. Catelyn has seen their protective knowledge and ability more than anyone, so it's no surprise she pragmatically knows that no direwolf is a bad thing. But the feeling is internal also. There's no hesitation about her making her mind up when she hears Grey Wind not liking Sir Rolf Spicer, and we know how correct that is. We must also understand that Catelyn is immediately suspicious of newcomers because she has been away from, from Rob for so long. It's critical to recall she hasn't even seen him since receiving the news of Bran and Rickon. She would naturally want to keep him close and safe even before all that, but now that she's had to sit and wait, knowing that Rob's going into battle, knowing that she's powerless to protect him even after she's failed, not really, even after she's failed to protect the others. As well as just a break in the tedium she's been experiencing, she now finally has a chance to do some parenting and actually protect her son, 
but there's newcomers instead. She feels out of the loop. She doesn't know these people. She hasn't been told about who they are or who this woman is. So it's understandable how she's unsettled by it. It's a removal from her position of importance with her son, and we can understand why there might be an underlying feeling of jealousy too. We actually already have a pretty good example of the tedium and unease because Catelyn recalls seeing the phrase riding away and she was just as confused and wondering as uh, as a first-time reader would be. So this is a clever moment of forcing us all to live in Catelyn's shoes as someone who is completely present and yet completely uninformed. And again, I refer to that tedium and her likely desire just to do something to help her children. She's just waiting to hear about Brienne and Jamie. She's just waiting to hear about Rob. Obviously, she can't affect anything in the North. It's very, very frustrating. So obviously, that's going to really rub up against her. She finds out, yet there's more stuff unknown to her. George knows there's a big revelation coming at the end of this chapter, so he ramps the tension up further and further in terms of wanting to know what the hell's going on with all these riders and all these people with Rob. And it's a technique we'll see again and again with Catelyn's arc and everyone else's as well. He does this a lot. Uh, check back in for Sam 1 later and we'll see it full on. And also just a note on these phrase, imagery is pretty upfront this time. Phrase trampling on Stark banners. There's going to be a lot of that later on too. But back to this meeting with Rob. Speaking of a desire to get back in the game, we can clearly see Catelyn believing Rob to be the one who can unlock her from her central sin bin. She's, put, she's been put on the bench. Remember in Clash of Kings she was riding here, there and everywhere, trying to affect things in a major way. Now she's just pretty much locked in a room with her father. Maybe she thought at one point that Edmure could play that role of release for her. But he's clearly shown he doesn't have the interest as he goes back to his kind of big man on campus role by hanging around with his pals. Therefore, we can see from this quote in a minute that, that Catelyn has convinced herself that Rob equals salvation. And really, what other option does she have to believe in? Rob is her only option to be motherly, to have any effect on the war for either side of her family, Tully's or Stark's, her only platform to actually interact with the world. I think we sometimes see the kind of pressure that that places on Rob, considering how much he already has on his shoulders. And this reunion is one of those times where Rob realises how he is holding his mother up, but still has to make the tough decisions. So let me give you this quote. He will forgive me, Catelyn told herself. He must forgive me. He is my own son, and I and Sansa as much his blood as mine. He will free me from these rooms, and then I will know what has happened. So at the end of that quote especially re-reinforces this point about Catelyn just being desperate for knowledge. She just wants to know what's going on. That's not a lot to ask. The reunion between Rob and Catelyn has always been one of my favourite Rob moments ever, just to switch it from Catelyn to Rob for a minute here. It is one of his best ever showings of political savvy and knowing how to work a room whilst also turning things to his advantage. At the same time, there's a huge element of a sudden caught of his hand in the cookie jar, really wiping the sweat from his brow when he realises he's got an out in terms of the trouble he might be in with his mum. And it really does come together kind of perfectly for Rob to move from being the one who has made a major, major, potentially rain-destroying mistake to the one of the more superiority. And we could have spent a long time breaking down all the root causes of the Red Wedding. As we've uncovered recently, it probably it was probably going to go down whether Rob marries Jane or not, but it's still a pretty major mess-up that he obviously feels guilty about. So the effect is still pretty much the same. The first thing Rob does is walk the incredibly thin tightrope walk of defending Catelyn when Rickard Carstark starts grumbling, which is obviously critical in terms of presenting a united front. This could quickly turn into a Lannister-type vibe if Rob allows Catelyn to come under fire and the whole thing dissolves into a disunited front. And remember, there aren't a whole bunch of family members here to rely upon. The other Starks are all out for the count, Lysa ain't playing the game, and Hoster is on his way out as well. There's Ednor, Catelyn, Rob and Brynden, and that's it. So United Front is critical. Not letting your bannermen think they can say whatever they like is critical, and Rob responds appropriately. At the same time, 
he has to be at least semi-united with his bannerman in terms of Catelyn's own mistake about Jamie. If he comes in and lets her off scot-free, well, we probably don't need to discuss what kind of feelings that would inspire amongst his bannerman and especially within Edmure, again cracking that family dynamic. But here's where the tightrope grows thinnest because he also forgives her without endorsing her actions. That's really important. In fact, he pulls a double whammy by publicly ensuring everyone knows he did not order Jamie's release, but that he understands why she did it. In a very tense situation, Rob somehow manages to keep all parties happy, at least as much as possible. Not completely, but no one was ever going to do that. I have to imagine that when Rob clicks he can use the Jamie thing to his advantage, he must have sent a kiss to the old gods, because as Catelyn Luther realises, he's trapped her. She can hardly go off on him when he has publicly, and that is so important at that point, just been so nice to her. Not only that, but he's smart enough to know that his accepted reasons of love and matters of the heart he's just excused from Catelyn are now what he's going to use to excuse his own deeds, putting the final nail in his trap. The best example of this is this quote, I know what it is to love so greatly you can think of nothing else. I do think it's really important to consider Rob doesn't have a small council with setting this trap for him. There's no Varys or Littlefinger working in the shadows, there's not even a Davos to advise him. He's got lords to talk to, okay, but no one really politically able enough to help him in this matter. Though the Blackfish is a dab hand at dealing with difficult family situations, I'm not sure how much he would have helped out here. This, at least mostly, is all Rob. And to be honest, all of that just sums up what a good king Rob would have been, so that's just even more annoying. Never mind. Now, Aziz used my note of, of Catelyn sticking up, sticking up for herself in front of Rickard, so that's good. And on that note, I'm very interested in the inner politics of the Northern contingent. I always have been this kind of half-Northern, half-Riverlord council or court that Rob holds. Very interested in that. For the Northmen, they are all far away from home. Most of them have lost kin by now, or they've all fought in battles. They've thrown their lot in with Rob, and if they fail, all is lost for them and probably the people back home as well. If the mages or the Great Johns, who are incidentally much kinder to Catelyn for their respective reasons, had become aware of Rickard intending to defect or leave, and wonder if they might have tried to intervene on Rob's behalf. Now, I guess it's not really clear if Rickard was ever actually going to... I don't know sure if he would have just run away. He was obviously looking for some kind of showdown with Rob, as we'll get to in Catelyn's next chapter. But I would just like to have seen the inner workings of what's going on here. It's fitting we can think upon Rickard's reaction to losing his sons in the field of battle, when we've so recently had to discuss Davos also losing his boys also in battle. The circumstances are wildly different, but it's so interesting to see how the two react differently and yet the same. We'd naturally think of Davos as being above such things as Rickard Karstark, but he is lucky enough to be diverted off the vengeance course and his soul is saved, not so much for Rickard. So we go from public meeting with all the lords to kind of inner family meeting, and before the tension of this chapter finally can be released, Catelyn starts to sit through this roll call of spices and westlings, something that merely confuses her at this point. She still doesn't know what these people are doing here. While we've just spoken about Rob pulling off a mini victory, we also see in his listing of names that he's kind of becoming a sheepish child again for this moment, knowing all his tricks are played, and in a few seconds he will just have to tell his mother the truth. There's not so much dancing around it now. When Jane is finally introduced as Rob's wife, George's technique of Catelyn having three, kind of four reactions, one after the other, has always stuck out to me. I won't read them all to you because there's a lot. The first almost has an innocence to it, as it's so sudden a reaction, it resets to Catelyn's base level, being a parent. A beat later and her political mind kicks in, giving us a real stomach tilt for the kind of horror that this is going to invoke later. Finally, she clicks about Rob winning the political minigame, and actually agrees with us that this was a real respectable effort from him. 
Even with the big news, Callan has to feel some pride that it wasn't just Sansa that inherited her political aptitude. In the third act of the chapter, we have mother and son alone again, and we see that this constant pairing of the two acts most connected with both of them, which is freeing Jamie and marrying Jane, and I, I do love that those two characters will come back together in Feast, they both also came around because of the exact same event, Bran and Rickon's supposed death. Given all the after-effects of those two actions, and the fact that they are based on an event that never even happened, it's just too delicious to get into. <laughs> on first read, I think that many, including myself, simply believe Rob's decision to marry Jane the next day is merely Rob acting out the lessons of Ned and him trying to live his life as Ned would. It's only with multiple rereads and analysis from the fandom that I realise there is also a negative influence from Ned as well, in that Rob desperately did not want to father a bastard as his father supposedly did. That makes the fact this story is being related back to Catelyn even more poignant, as I'm assuming Catelyn made quite the effort to impress upon Rob the evils of bastards, especially in the early years. Even if her efforts failed to keep him and John apart, obviously something has stuck. We have this quote from their conversation, and Rob says, If I had listened to you and kept Fionn as my hostage, I'd still rule the North, and Bran and Rickon would be alive and safe in Winterfell. Perhaps, or not, Lord Balon might have still chanced war. The last time he reached her a crown, it cost him two sons. He might have fought it a bargain to lose only one this time. And it turns out Catelyn was dead right on that mark. Instead of taking the opportunity for a good, I told you so, she reassures her son, and this time is politically correct by accident. Catelyn talking on the insults done to the phrase makes this a good time to talk about how, if Valeridus has convinced me of anything, it's how early on Walder Frey and Roose Bolton committed to their betrayals, and how this act, this specific act by Rob, really didn't swing the needle at all. What I do like is Rob noting how different things could have been so different if Stevron Frey had lived. It's very easy to miss that Stevron was seemingly the best of the Freys, and possibly presented a large enough obstacle for the Red Wedding for Black Walder to maybe kill him. It's another one of those great what-if debates that there's so many of. And to be honest, I completely forgot how much we actually get in this one chapter. I originally remembered this ending scene as being bumped to Catelyn 3, but here we are, and the start is almost a straight rehash from the earlier event of the chapter, in that Rob has a very good political face in front of the crowd, and then things become quite different in private. If you remember, he has another little public meeting, and then it's family only, and it's Rob versus Edmure, or maybe Brynden versus Edmure. And while I am very much in Edmure's corner in terms of him always siding with the small folk, with him pointing out who has bled for the Riverlands on multiple occasions, and what a great feat Battle of the Fords actually was, Edmure does show off a bit of his lesser side in this conversation. Once he realises the mood is against him, he immediately starts speaking of glory and who gets it, telling us what we already learnt in Clash. Edmure is a good guy, but he's also motivated by a desire to get some credit, and you may recall from our Clash episodes that Edmure really did need a win at the time, so that certainly interlocks. They have this big argument about whether Rob's orders were clear or correct, and that's been debated by people far more qualified to do so than me. Whomever was right, I really do wish we could have got Tywin riding west just so this battle plan of Rob's could have been enacted in the Westerlands. That would have been cool. I'm assuming there would have been no POVs there to tell us about it anyway, but it just sounds brilliant. It has all the flavour of the Brynden Tully operation, a heavy focus on geography, an element of surprise, being outnumbered by the enemy and winning anyway. Sign me up. Without wishing to get into the details of this argument between Rob and Edmure, I would say that Rob's orders might have been slightly unclear, but were generally understandable, and that Edmure knows deep down he pushed the letter a bit far, because as we mentioned, he really wanted that win and a real statement victory, I guess. That, coupled with the fact he probably generally did expect to be praised for a job well done, and technically that is true, he did do a job well done, 
The realisation of the opportunity he accidentally gave to Tyrone guilts him too much to enjoy his victory any longer. He finally has to face up to the fact that his victory has cost them more than he ever intended. We can get into the argument of Rob trying to return north a bit more when they actually leave the Riverlands, but as I've always been interested in Rob's northern contingent, I've also wondered what his Riverlands contingent, his Riverlords, would actually make of him going back north and leaving them to the mercy of the Lannister-Tyrell alliance, because that's a, a handy enemy to deal with. I'm sure they understand his motive, and to be fair, they were all allowed to go home and defend their people, but they can't be happy about being left exposed to this huge new alliance who've just sent Stannis Baratheon running off with his tail between his legs. So they all start getting grumbly and looking for a quick out as well, maybe. Especially since, as much as Rob's motive to protect his home does make sense, the worst has already been done. Winterfell is already burned and the people are already taken. He can't actually save it, and to go back and rebuild is obviously not going to be a short task. In amongst all that is whether Rob specifically needed the phrase numbers or just their bridge, but we can probably leave that for another time and we'll leave Catelyn there today as well. And if you think this is uh, one step down the darkness slide, wait for Catelyn 3 where Rob does really have some tough stuff to deal with. But for now, we're going up all the way up to John 2 in the north. Now, as he's got to my opening remarks about John seeing the giants and what kind of a, a mind blow that is, but a lot of that was just the kind of logistical stuff of what's going to happen with all these giants and their mammoths later on. There's also this really profound moment for John that this is really proving he's not in Kansas anymore. Yes, he has experienced the eeriness of Ghost, he's had a weird dream about Bran. Oh, and he also killed a dead guy once, but now John is seeing hundreds of giants. These things that were supposed to be a, just a story from old Nan. So this really isn't so different from Bran finally meeting some children of the forest, apart from, and I know Aziz had to mention this a lot, there are hundreds of them, it's a bit different. Not only all that, but John quickly learns that some wildlings can even talk to these behemoths, and therefore gets another quick lesson on wildling culture that he never would have learned anywhere else, obviously. It's amazing, and yet even more terrifying, about what that kinship could mean for everyone beneath the wall. But John moves on from this reality-altering viewing onto his actual mission of gaining information for the Night's Watch, and he does that with relative smoothness. But before he even begins to talk, we get this little reminder of where his true loyalties lie, and I quote, His new cloak hanging heavy from his shoulders. It kept the snow off well enough, and at night it was good and warm. But he kept his black cloak as well, folded up beneath his saddle. The Black Cloak of the Night's Watch is obviously highly related to their personal identity and the institution as a whole, so its removal and the wearing of a new cloak, however physically handy it might be, is a major moment for John. He has quite literally turned his cloak. He clearly cannot handle a complete disregard for the thing that ties him to his brothers and his mission the most, so he has kept it safe and hidden. I imagine this secret will become more and more important as John goes deeper and deeper into the world and culture. The hidden cloak is almost like his escape rope or his tether, if he lets that go, he has no path to return home, in his mind. Having said that, I would not want to be around if one of his fellow wildlings ever discovered that he had kept it. Probably not the best idea. I have another quote, just to switch subjects here slightly. Mance called you the hornblower, didn't he? Mead king of Ruddy Hall, husband to bears, fathers to hosts. It was the hornblowing he particularly wanted to hear about, but he dared not ask too plainly. And Jorman blew the horn of winter, and woke giants from the earth. So it's good to see that John is following our same line of thinking from last week. Why is Tormund called Hornblower? And his logic makes sense. One of the theories on the Horn of Winter is that it raises giants. And there just so happens to be giants bloody everywhere now. So everything Corrin said and the rumours John's heard suddenly seem a lot more substantial and his mission becomes even more urgent. I find myself more and more interested in everything to do with the Horn of Winter in this go-around 
And it's so fascinating how it kind of disappears from the narrative pretty soon, although I guess we do get Dragonbinder to replace it in one book's time, just for fans of magical horns, I guess. Try as John might to gain some valuable information, and honor Corrin's last command, he's already finding it difficult. Not only has he now been brushed aside from Mance's bunch and not allowed to overhear any handy plans, like when and where they might be attacking, his vows are now being tested full-on in ways he had not anticipated. Suddenly switching cloaks is not such a big deal when Egret is creeping into your role every night. For all John's worries that if we were to respond to Egret he would be breaking his vows and losing his identity, he also genuinely spills to Tormund that if he were to get her pregnant, the child would be a bastard, an idea that horrifies John. And yet again, it's superb chapter placement by George. We've just discussed Rob being worried about repeating Ned's supposed mistake, and now we have John doing the same. Obviously, the feeling is magnified a hundred times over for John than it is for Rob, as John actually had to suffer Catelyn's distance and harshness, and knows firsthand what it is to be left outside. But so interesting how these two can be paired together despite living in completely different universes now. John's lessons in wilding culture also continue. Not only has he learned about their talking to giants in the old tongue, but Tormund teaches them about their views on bastardry, and how one might go about telling a young lady one is interested in her. He becomes aware of more individuals and leaders, giving us our first mention of Varimar Sixkins, and I'm not even sure he's aware he's becoming fond of more than one, he's seeing friends among these people now. Already we see him slipping into this temptation. As it stands, John only feels guilty over potentially betraying the Night's Watch. Before long, he'll feel the same about the prospect of betraying slash abandoning the wildlings, and this is where those feelings find their roots. In a continuation of the giants being similar to the wildlings is their respective views on freedom and kneeling, with Tormund giving a real good mini-speech where he compares the giants to other animals and nature in general, perhaps suggesting the giants and wildlings are set up as nature intended as opposed to the political structure of humans. John will get enough of the freedom talk from Egret as we go, but that's not the only source. And to look further into John's mindset at the moment, I bring you this next quote. For 8,000 years, the men of House Stark had died and lived to protect their people against such ravages and reavers, and bastard born or no, the same blood ran in his veins. So John is still committed to his original mission, but he knows the danger involved. He knows these people around him will deliver terror to the lands he, as a Night's Watchman, has sworn to protect. But as we see in this quote, John isn't 100% identifying as a crow, but also as a Stark. Like in Bran's chapter last week, like in Rob in the chapter a moment ago, the age-old duty of the Starks to protect those of the North is burned into him and he cannot comprehend not upholding that. John thinks this when he is considering the possibility of having to kill Mance, and though that will shame him, though it will lead to an incredible painful death for him, and though John even admits to half-liking Mance already, ultimately there is no question of not performing his duty as a Stark. To me, this all shows that the bounds of being a Stark will always run much deeper than those of the Night's Watch, which might just happen to become important in Dance of Dragons and later. And while John is thinking about all these dangers that could be going south towards home, he thinks this. Bran and Rickon are still at Winterfell besides. Maester Lewin, Sir Roderick, Old Nan, Farlin the Kennelmaster, Mickin at his forge, engaged by his ovens, everyone I ever knew, everyone I ever loved. So thank you, George, just for taking the opportunity to twist the knife a bit there. Thank you very much. I'm going to take it back to Giants again because we get a song in this chapter about the giants and their plight and it obviously invokes many emotions as we hear this tale of eradication and slowly being pushed up here to the lands of winter. We can make easy comparisons of humanity barging down the door and driving out whatever and whoever was there before and again we can make the argument that giants and children of the forest are the natural owners of Westeros with humanity being the unnatural invaders. It seems to be well timed considering that maybe giants, wildlings 
and the Westerosi in general might be about to suffer the same kind of large-scale devastation by another foreign force, as we're about to be reminded of in a second. Incidentally, John's comment about there being no need to cry because there are hundreds of giants left ranks of privilege in this context. Will he feel the same if by the end of it all there's just a few humans who've been pushed back to dawn? I've never really thought about that before. Maybe, maybe that would be the end of the whole series, that there'll be a hundred humans left in the dawn and that's it. So far we've spent a lot of time inside John's head during this chapter and there's more to come, but let's move on to the most significant part of this chapter, the ending upon the fist of the first men. And let's look at trends first, it's an interesting point. As the books have gone on, the gap of connections between prologue and main story has widened. In Game of Thrones, we got an immediate follow-up to the prologue, with Ned beheading Garrod in the very first proper chapter, in Bran's first proper chapter. In Clash of Kings, it takes ten chapters for Davos 1 to follow up on Crescent at Dragonstone. Here we are in Jon 2, 15 chapters after we heard the Whites coming at the fist in Chet's prologue. This trend will continue to increase after this. You can argue you have to wait the full 45 chapters of A Feast for Crows to get Sam following up on Pate's prologue, and even then it is just only one line drop about the pig boy. And we can also argue that there is never any true follow-up for Varamir's chapter in Dance, so let's wait and see what the Winds of Winter prologue will be and how long that will take to make a connection. The scene inside the tents between Mance and John is as tension-filled as they come, culminating everything that's been going on in John's mind throughout this chapter, about what he needs to choose, how much choice he actually has in the matter, and what path he is about to travel. And he's got to a bit of my notes on the hints we're given of what's been happening at the fist. And especially there's that line, John had never seen pink snow before, and I love that. It's a quick seven words, and we instantly get the gruesome image of death spread out all over the camp, and now it's confirmed that something went very, very wrong in the Night's Watch defence. And we have to put ourselves in a first-time reader mindset. For all we knew then, Sam, Dior, everyone had been completely slaughtered. In a second, we'll get a general guess from Mance and Harmer that at least some of the Night's Watch survived, but we've no idea who, or whether they were actually alive, so our imagination is allowed to fill in all the gaps at this point. As John puts it, he wondered where poor Sam was now, and what he was. But then comes the tent, Mance again, and John's next hurdle on his road of being a spy. Before the big words, something stuck out to me that I didn't remember. I'll give you this quote. And on his head was a great bronze and iron helm, with raven rings at either temple. I didn't recall this being mentioned after this point either, but I did have a quick search, and the only other raven-winged helm mentioned belongs to Bluetooth on the Iron Islands. But John also does take note of this helm when they are at the Battle for the Wall, and it puts me in the mind of Artis Aaron and the Winged Knight. I'm sure there's no connection there, but it's also worth noting that this is quite a different man from the laid-back singer we had in John 1, as we will see now as we continue with their conversation. For now, this is the actual challenge, and it starts off rough for John when Mance calls him out for giving false information in John's last chapter, and then highlights John referring to the Night's Watch as us instead of them. So right from the get-go, John is on the back foot. He knows he's in the spotlight, and it's now or never to commit himself or die. They are already threatening to take his eye out, for example. George makes sure we know the turmoil going on in John's mind at the moment, as almost every single line of dialogue comes with John thinking on Corrin's orders out or his vows, there's no mistake what a difficult, emotional moment this is for him, and though he tries to buy some time by not mentioning Dior immediately, Mance puts an end to the dance with his threats. This throws John into his one other option, killing Mance. He gets one step closer, then one more, but Mance sees, sees that as well, and John is left with nothing to do but give up the information or die. Spinning the beans is a double-edged sword. At the same time, he is furthering his mission by in integrating more of the wildlings and earning their trust, but he is also breaking his vows and testing his identity. It's actually Egret speaking up that pushes him over the edge, 
again linking him to the depth of how, how far he's willing to go, as we spoke about earlier, but not before he thinks this. This is too hard, John thought in despair. How do I play the turncloak without becoming one? Corin had not told him that. And that's a great point. John hasn't been to spy school. He's not even a bloody ranger, he's a steward. And I doubt the rangers, maybe Corrin's ones, possibly, are really taught the inner workings of how to infiltrate the enemy without dying or losing oneself entirely. John is miles beyond what anyone foresaw him having to do as a brother of the Night's Watch, and it leaves it all on his shoulders. It's also worth noting that Mance is able to put the information that John gives up to far more use than anyone else would be. In some cases, he knows the current leaders even better than John does, so once John gives up a name, Mance becomes infinitely more informed on his best options, really highlighting how Mance's unique backstory makes him such a threat. Mance also says this, this is very interesting, you cannot fight the dead, Jon Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. I know this isn't the actual point that Mance is making here, but I do appreciate the irony of him saying this when Jon actually did fight the dead and win. I also don't think we've ever been given an explanation of Mance's experiences of the dead and what he's hinting at here, and I am desperate to know. After this, he gives specific commands to his leaders, so he obviously has a fairly intimate knowledge of how to fight them. But how, we still do not know. And for all the steps that John himself takes here, it's Egret who gets him over the edge. Egret who speaks up and is happy to lie about what they've been up to. It saves John, gets them put on the same mission, and then she bags John for later that night. So again, the double-edged sword. He's still alive, he's at least heading for the wall now with a slight chance of escape or delay or misdirecting the wildlings or both, but now he's almost confirmed to break his vows because of what Egret has done for him. And if that's not enough, we get one of the coolest ghost moments ever when Rattleshirt tries to challenge Egret and John. You've got no wolf to help you here, boy. Rattleshirt reached for his own sword. Sure that are you, Egret laughed. Atop the stones of the ring wall, ghost hunched with white fur bristling. He made no sound, but his dark eyes spoke blood. The fact that Ghost does all this without making a sound makes it even more terrifying slash cool, but it's just such an easy image to picture. I wonder what Ghost was up to prior to this. Remember, he did not want to go near the ring wall back in Clash, and he was definitely interested in finding stuff elsewhere. So maybe he's been having another check elsewhere on the hill, or maybe he knows the dangers of the others have passed. Either way, pretty chilling. So let's leave John there. We will return to the, the fist kind of later on. But for now, a very, very different setting in Sansa 2. And I'm going to start this one off with a quote straight away. It's the first line of the chapter. A new gown, she said, as wary as she was astonished. As mentioned in her last chapter, Sansa has been denied any feminine company or much contact with the feminine world at large in Clash of Kings, aside from her time with Cersei at the Blackwater, which we really should not be counting. We noted in Sansa 1 that the influx of Tyrells has changed that, and we continue the theme here. Not only in the obvious material of Sansa concentrating heavily on a new dress, which would obviously be a more feminine pursuit in this world, but in several other aspects also. Now, at the time of reading, a first-timer can't possibly know that this new gown is eventually going to lead to Sansa marrying Tyrion, because we've been given zero hints that is in the works just yet that's going to come later, which I suppose makes this one of the very best chapters for rereading. In any case, we can see a similar sort of thing in the importance of garments when Cersei and Elena come to blows over what Tommen needs to wear in his own wedding in the next book. Point being, these things matter in a political world. And just one more thing to glean from that opening sentence, for all the hope that the Tyrells bring Sansa, she has not lost her wariness or suspicion about what is happening around her. Those lessons have not disappeared just because someone is finally being nice to her. Another quote, the Queen herself has commanded it. Which Queen? The Queen Regent, to be sure. 
and oh, what I wouldn't give for Cersei to overhear this exchange. The fact that the word queen doesn't immediately make Sansa think of Cersei would drive the queen regent insane, and it's a good indicator of the growing influence of the Tyrells and the Cold War going on in the background of King's Landing, as much of this chapter indirectly references. Moving past the dress, we get another reminder of the Tyrell playbook and Sansa's re-immersion into female company. All of a sudden, she's remembering playing the harp, she's sharing in the gossip of the court, and most interestingly, she's doing needlework while eating lemon cakes with the three Tyrell cousins. Let us not forget that's exactly how we were introduced to Sansa way back in Game of Thrones, when she did the same thing with Marcella and Jane Poole, and I think as Aegis mentioned, we should always have a moment of silence for Jane Poole. And again, Sansa confirms that even though she enjoys her time with the Tyrells that she's constantly remembering through this chapter, and this is basically a whole new world compared to Clash of Kings, she's smart enough to keep certain thoughts and secrets to herself. She's also aware enough to realise she is different to these girls. She has seen things they have not. She has experienced more of the real world than they have, and she has gained enough self-awareness about herself to see what she was once like. This line in particular can pull at the heartstrings of Sansa's lost youth. They are children, Sansa thought. They are silly little girls, even Eleanor. They've never seen a battle. They've never seen a man die. They know nothing. Their dreams were full of songs and stories, the way hers had been before Joffrey cut her father's head off. Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. And in that vein, we re-readers should pity them as well, for we know these new fans of songs and stories will end up in the custody of the faith in a book's time. Sansa keeps up a reduced suspicion towards Marjorie herself. She's always thinking about what could be in it for Marjorie, what's her end goal, etc, etc. But Marjorie also plays her role to perfection. She befriends Sansa, keeps her sweet on the Tyrells in general, and is constantly bringing up Willis in this Nick's memory. All this is just a long line of memories in this chapter, which we'll discuss in a minute. Again, we can now see this as an effort to prep Sansa for a quickie marriage, should the Tyrells decide to use their wild card. So there's yet more under-the-table politics going on in this chapter. All of this is enough to incite another confession of Joffrey's true nature, which is near as tough a barrier to break as before. Let's not think it's easy for Sansa to start talk chatting about Joffrey now just because she's done it once and she does that in order to try and save Marjorie from a cruel fate that's how close they've been the confidence in Marjorie's reply does get you wondering about how much she knew about what Elena had planned for Joffrey and their wedding night something that really hasn't been answered through the five books and I'm finding more and more of these unanswered questions as we go through this reread because her reliance on Loras doesn't seem to be airtight Marjorie cites the example of Aemon the Dragonite and Nares as a, a brother protecting a sister in the Kingsguard. That's not a great comparison. Nares still had a pretty miserable time of it with Aegon IV, Dragon Knight or no Dragon Knight. Or, more recently, Cersei didn't have a happy time of it despite Jaime's presence. I love that Sansa is smart enough to see how easy this could all blow up with another Kingslayer in, in terms of Loras and, a, and then another civil war. She knows how these things work by now. And I'm just going to slip this quote in here. Aya had been entirely unsatisfactory as sisters went. I'm all for sympathy for Sansa, but let's also remember she's not a saint, and this little line is a good reminder. Yes, an unneeded dig, Sansa. Sansa's memories move from Marjorie to Dantos, and again, I cite the slightly odd structure of this chapter. And could there be two people more physically different than Marjorie and Dantos? It's a, it's a pretty big gap to leap there. We've discussed Dantos's many shortcomings a good many times so far, but here comes his cruelest act of all, the selling of Sansa's secret to Littlefinger, which leads her to being married off to Tyrion, becoming a member of the family that killed her own kin, and steals away her dream of Highgarden and Willis. And though we know the Tyrells would intend to use her as a born too, I'm going to say that even if Sansa was made aware of that fact, she's probably still going to choose the eldest Tyrell over the youngest Lannister. 
Not content with his ultimate betrayal of the girl who saved his life, and with no bigger incentive than some more booze money, Dantos tries to insist upon the idea that Sansa cannot trust the Tyrells, cannot trust anyone. Only noble Dantos has her best interests in mind. And doesn't the idea of making Sansa feel alone, with no accomplices but one single male, seem right out of the Peter Palish playbook? Especially when said single male keeps putting more and more focus on Sansa kissing him. There. The man asks for kisses as he sells her down the river. Curse you, Dantos. I bloody hate you. The only light we can take from this cloud is that Sansa does take a step back and look at Dantos, however slightly. She does stand up for herself, politely, as only Sansa can, and stays away from him for at least a little while. We can only imagine what Dantos must have felt when he realised that Sansa was wising up a bit, so let's at least take comfort that he has to squirm for a while. Still, Dantos's whispers do stick with Sansa. Her dreams have her thinking about why the Tyrells have an interest in her, but she actually faces the question head-on and accepts that whatever the reason, it might still end up being the best option for her long-term. Even if the details have trouble sticking in her head, the basic vision is one she's always dreamed of, that being at Highgarden and living the life that she's always wanted since she was a girl. And what I love about Sansa's thoughts here is that like John and Bran before her, she thinks of fulfilling her duty as a Stark. Let me quote, If I give him sons, he may come to love me. She would name them Eddard and Brandon and Rickon and raise them all to his valiant as Sir Loras, and to hate Lannisters too. In Sansa's dreams, her children looked just like the brothers she had lost. Sometimes there was even a girl who looked like Arya. So firstly, full marks for including Arya this time round, but most importantly is Sansa's underlying willingness to include her family, honour them, and do what she was supposed to do. I think we can all agree that Sansa's duty and role as a Stark shouldn't be reduced to just that of the mother, we know that she's going to be doing a lot of other stuff in the future, but we also know that Catelyn would have impressed this role on her a lot in her youth. Either way, Sansa's starkness is as alive as ever, so much so that she is promising to avenge the evils of the Lannisters by giving the world back to Starks that have been lost and ensuring those crimes will not be forgotten by teaching her children to hate Lannisters. In a blanket, it's easy to think that if Sansa had gotten to Highgarden, everything would be rosy. There's a, a nice pun just for Aziz fans there. But we also have to put it in the context of what we know now. Sansa in Highgarden means Sansa directly in the path of Euron Greyjoy. Maybe, anyway. While I would like to see Sansa interact with Samuel Tarly, and definitely Gilly, we know we don't want her anywhere near Euron. But to be fair, I'd still take my chances of her being safe at Highgarden instead of into Littlefinger's grasp. So, just to talk on the structure of this chapter, I really had forgotten that the whole chapter technically takes place over about 10 minutes, and Sansa doesn't even move, it is literally all memory. And I struggled to think of any a Song of Ice and Fire chapter that takes it to this extreme. There are other examples, we'll get to one later today. But this far, where it's, again, 10 minutes of real time and no movement, I don't think there's another one that we can compare there. Please correct me if I am wrong. From one Stark sister to the next, as they so often are, we go from Sansa 2 to IF3. I think that's our first number 3 POV, if I'm right. Now this can be a hard chapter to remember just off the face of it because plot-wise, not too much happens. To be honest, this is a, a lot another chapter, kind of a lot of memory, a lot of dialogue, and really the only real event is Aya trying to escape from the Brotherhood again, but and that obviously fails. Let's get to that in a second. We've spoken a lot about Sansa and Aya chapters being placed so close by to each other, so certain parallels can be observed, and we get that here as we transport from a chapter entirely set within a castle chamber with a seamstress to the world country, with Aya riding around on a horse. Also similar to Sansa, Aya has to question whether her supposed salvation is a good thing or not. She's wondering whether they are going the right way, whether she is being delivered to her family or not. We know the answer as rereaders. 
Aya herself will only have to wait a couple of pages to discover what the Brotherhood is actually up to, but for the first time reader, the tension of Aya's last chapter is renewed, even with Harwin's entrance back in Aya 2. Speaking of Harwin, the reader is also made to wait to find out the fallout of that meeting, instead focusing on what Aya has lost as opposed to what she's gained. In this case, Hot Pie. We've touched on this last time, but you have to give Hot Pie his due. Yes, he is included as a bit of a fall guy and some comic relief, but he's also played a vital role for keeping Aya sane. Somehow being able to keep Gendry and Hot Pie with her has allowed Aya to retain her human side. She spoke before about how she came to view them as a pack. Would she ever have found the strength to leave Harrenhal without them, for example? Aya will come to be a complete loner soon enough, so it's nice they are able to extend that pack mentality for a little bit. Especially because once she viewed Hot Pie as the ultimate enemy, back when Innocence still allowed such claims. As for the boy himself, somehow he remains unchanged. Other than perhaps learning a little humility in terms of reduced boasting, Hot Pie doesn't seem as hollowed out as one might expect for all that he's seen, and that's so rare in this war, we have to celebrate little victories. Of course, perhaps he sees more after we leave him, but for now, we just have to salute and hope we'll get to taste his bread again one day. A quick search shows that Aya does think of him again after this, imagining that he would enjoy the kitchens of the House of Black and White. So it's heartwarming that she still recalls one of her friends, the Michael that lived, if you will, if we want to talk about Aya making friends with small folk. So stepping right into the void of Hot Pie is Harwin, and she's finally able to bond with someone over what happened back in the Red Keep. Yoran may have sympathised in his own way, true, but this is the first time Aya's been able to talk to someone who can feel what that betrayal meant. After all, they both lost a father because of the coup. Also very interesting is that Aya's guilt remains over both the killing of the stable boy back in the Red Keep and the Harrenhal Guard. The whole Jack and Agar thing would have been too complicated for her to explain either way, so she keeps both of those secrets to herself. Although it's true the guard was more planned and fought out, and I suppose comes closer to actual murder, we can assume Harwin would not blame Aya for either of these, but to Aya it is not just Harwin who's listening. This is the first Northman she's truly come across after all, and she sees her father in him. I quote, Telling Harwin would almost be like telling her father, and there were some things that she could not bear having her father know. After all, what could be worse than disappointing Eddard Stark, so it's no wonder Aya keeps it to herself. For his part, Harwin gives us an enhanced version of the Brotherhood Without Banner's origin story, especially highlighting Beric Dondarrion's role as a leader you can get behind. Not only did Harwin and others witness him survive a mortal injury, and we should not discount this as a major, major reason for someone to get behind a cause 100% both physically and spiritually, remember how many followers Daenerys gained when she stepped out of the fire, but he was also treated to a rousing speech, with this part especially sticking out to me. We were still king's men, he said and those were the king's people the lions were savaging. If we could not fight for Robert, we would fight for them, until every man of us was dead. So this is the other half of the Brotherhood Without Banners mindset that Tom and the others began hinting at in Aya 2. This is how Beric convinced them of their legitimacy and of their mission. He gave them a cause, a true cause, which again was easy to get behind. Recall that many of them had been a pretty mishmash group with no dog in the fight other than Eddard's charge, and we see the evidence of that when their own ranks begin to be bolstered by the small folk. Thus, the mutually beneficial relationship was born, the one that allows the Brotherhood to be so devastatingly effective via resupply and hiding places, which we get an immediate example of in this chapter. I feel like we went through the larger framing of the Mummers Ford back in Game of Thrones, in terms of Jamie's attack on Eddard messing up Tywin's plan, as Harwin again outlines here, but it is a good reminder that Tywin was quite prepared to swing for the fences back then, something he is in the midst of doing now. Another quote from this little Harwin speech. We had lions on every side, and I thought I was doomed with the rest. 
but Alan shouted commands and restored order to our ranks, and those still horse rallied around Forrest and cut our way free. Now you might remember Alan, who's one of Ned's uh, guardsmen from his time in King's Landing, and I'd just like to hear that he did well, because Alan was pretty cool. It's a shame that we will later find out that he too perished. That's pretty annoying. But hey, what is this, a Sansa chapter? We're spending too much time in memories. Let's stop with that and get to the present. While stopping off in a village, there comes a, dis a discussion on the recently escaped Jamie Lannister, and while this is obviously of high interest to both Arya and the Brotherhood, it is a bit out of their scope for the moment. But we do get the line, Forrest must be told. The Lord of Light will show him Lannister in the flames. And as he's got to my notes about this quote, but just as an aside, it is likely that Harwin would find it harder to convert than the Riverlanders, given that he is a follower of the Old Gods. A good many of the South are incredibly pious, but the followers of the Old Gods just seem to have something more concrete in them. Their culture is tied into it all much more strongly, and Harwin grew up at Winterfell with an easy reach of a very impressive godswood. At the least, he wouldn't be in a rush to sign up to the law. Once they get back out on the road again, we get Aya's realisation of the chapter, that she is not headed to Riverrun a confirmation of what she worried about in Aya 2 before the distraction of Harwin came up. Everything we had to wonder previously about the plans of the Brotherhood and whether they can be trusted is at the same time answered and not answered. They misled Aya, that's true, but also technically they did not lie. Either way, what it reveals is that the decision isn't up to them. Even freedom fighters have a hierarchy, and the Brotherhood answer to Beric. We get a couple more clues also. First is Angai telling us that all highborn captives get to be taken to the big dog himself thereby letting us know that they do put highborns to good use via ransom, information collection, or trial, and that's something the small folk must particularly enjoy. And we also get confirmation that if Jamie had been captured, he would have been taken to Beric for such a trial as we thought about last week. On top of that, we are finally confirmed that we will meet Lord Beric Dondarrion again, so long after he first left King's Landing, and after we've soaked up larger-than-life tales of him in Harrenhal, in Lannister War Councils, and here in the Revelands of Aya. I imagine the first-time reader, incredibly keen to see what's real and what's not, forever wary of him not living up to the name, and unknowing of the true power keeping him alive, or at least they have yet to see it in practice. As we cynical re-readers know, the newbies will find out the truth of the rumours, the wonders of the Red God's magic, and eventually the dark toll that is taken on Beric the Man. As this chapter closes, Aya tries another escape attempt like I mentioned. She gets further this time, but she is still caught by none other than Harwin, leading to a very, very important message being put across. I quote from Aya here. I thought you were my father's man. Lord Eddard's dead, my lady. I belong to the Lightning Lord now, and to my brothers. What brothers? Old Hullen had fathered no other sons that I could remember. Angai, Lem, Thomas Evans, Jack and Greenbeard, all of them. We mean your brother Rob no ill, my lady. But it's not him we fight for. He has an army all of his own, and many a great lord to bend the knee. The small folk have only us. While both the reader and I are naturally disappointed that Harwin is not quite the resource of Northern Redemption we hoped for at the end of the last chapter, we get a very human explanation here. Harwin lost his only family, nearly lost his own life, certainly lost any chance he had to go home again. When Lord Eddard's cause failed, it was replaced by Beric's. Where Helen had died, Harwin now had brothers. Here we get Beric's message and system laid out for us in full, and as we discussed last time, their neutrality in regards to Rob is genuine. They do actually fight for the small folk, and this is something Harwin has been fully able to buy into, even if it does mean he turns his back, which is kind of a harsh way of putting it, on the Starks. It's so interesting because we rarely get to see Westerosi society through this kind of lens, especially in terms of someone deciding to abandon, and I still think that's a bit harsh, their original allegiance to follow something they truly believe in. Understandably, 
Aya thinks Harwin should be her father's man forever, because that's how oaths work, and especially how a child of Eddard Stark would see things. And to be fair, she's had a lifetime of seeing that loyalty be proven time and time again, so we can't really blame her. But we can also understand where Harwin is coming from. Winterfell, for all it is a far more warming and more welcoming place than most castles, is not the same for Harwin as it was for Aya. He was the Kennelmaster's son, nothing more. He did not exactly sign up for going into a full-on war. And this isn't to paint Harwin as a restless youth looking for adventure or feeling traps made by generations of his family. He was quite happy with the Starks, it seems, but then he suffered great loss, uprooting change, and entered into the horror of war. Add all that up with the persuasive elements we discussed earlier, and a real chance to affect change for those who truly need it, for those like him in terms of class, and because he chooses to, instead of is ordered to, it tells us Harwin is no oathbreaker slash abandoner. He's a good man, trying to do his best in the world, and who's discovered the best way to do it. It's a growing up moment for Aya, the same as any of the Stark children, and it's great that George gives us this rare glimpse into the plight of the small folk. It's not so different from Septon Meribold's speech, in my opinion. So that chapter, a little bit quicker there, like I said, it's not too heavy on plot development, it's a, another little travel chapter. That cannot be said for our final chapter of the day, our final first opening chapter. Sorry Merritt, I'm not including you. It is Sam 1, so do come back up to the north, back above the wall for an incredibly harrowing and incredibly important chapter in Sam 1. Now earlier on I said that John 2 was the first follow-up on the prologue of this book, and while that's true in terms of John visiting the same settings, this is the true follow-up. After 18 chapters devoted mostly to the goings-on of politics and the centre of the continent or far-off Essos, we finally return to the cliffhanger of horror that George dangled us on at the beginning of this book. Far, far more importantly, we get the largest account of whites and others since the prologue of Game of Thrones, or, depending on your view, ever. Yes, we had John fight a white one-on-one, -on -one, but this is the first description we ever, we ever get of them moving en masse, of the sheer terror and unstoppability of them. This is a confirmation of everything hinted back in the mind of Will. In fact, it's a larger leap. We've experienced the Green Fork and the Blackwater of Tyrion and Davos, Catelyn has witnessed the Whispering Wood, but all of that carnage and horror pales in comparison to Sam's memories of the fist we get in this chapter. It is a scene plucked from the most violent of horror movies, and it is the moment George finally chooses to drop the hammer on us after two and a quarter books. Everything you wondered, everything you could dream up about these shadows from the north, it is worse. It is way worse, and humanity is in trouble. So in that context, I say we really have to label Sam 1 as one of the most important chapters in the entire A Song of Ice and Fire series. If we are going to say the ultimate endgame and the problem above all problems is the coming of the others and the threat to humanity, this is a huge step forward both in terms of reader slash character knowledge and in terms of the others unveiling themselves. This is no three men mere alone in the woods. This is a battle-ready camp of near 300 and they get crushed. Obviously, the others feel that they have no reason to pull their punches anymore. Again, the message is clear. They are coming. And we can fall down a rabbit hole of theories about whether the others allowed a contingent to escape, so I won't attempt to wrestle with those theories here. All of this is a pretty big responsibility for Sam to have to bear as a new POV, and George certainly gives himself a task of introducing a new POV's core self along with this incredibly important message about the army of the dead. Of course, Sam is hardly a new POV in the sense of the complete slash virtual strangers we will be getting in Feast and Dance. He's well established, we know what he's basically all about, so George can kind of cut a corner here. Still, there are challenges and experiments of how this chapter is formed. Like with Sansa a couple of minutes ago, this story is mainly told through memory. 
even if the tone of those memories can scarcely be more different than what we saw with Sansa at Highgarden and court gossip and lemon cakes. Note also that the memories come in mere snippets at the beginning before transforming it almost into a chapter of their own as Sam slowly allows himself to come to terms with what he's seen. The whole thing comes together in a masterpiece of tone, which George sets straight away with the first line of the chapter. Sobbing, Sam took another step. And this one line is repeated over and over again, not only setting the tone and telling us something bad has happened, but relentlessly pummeling us with the same message. It's inescapable, it's unending, because this is exactly how this march feels to Sam. It feels like he'll be walking forever. It feels like he'll never be safe again. It feels like misery and fear are the only things that exist anymore, and George makes us feel the same. Another quote. They're not my feet, they're someone else's. Someone else is walking, it can't be me. So this comes at the end of the opening paragraph, and this disassociation of Sam's physical body from his sense of self. Immediately, we are made aware that Sam is clearly suffering from shock or PTSD in some form, but it's also just a form of disbelief. This situation is so horrible, Sam can't quite believe it's him featuring in it. Or to look at it another way, it is so horrible, Sam can't quite believe he's survived this long. And it adds on to this feeling of the unending march, the unending suffering. He's been going so long it doesn't even feel like it's him doing it anymore. And to be fair, we shouldn't ignore the extreme temperatures numbing his limbs and helping out with this disassociation. Just to confirm all this, we get another line a few paragraphs below. It felt more like he was falling down than walking, falling endlessly but never hitting the ground, just falling forward and forward. So I can see from that it's a repetitive fall into despair over and over and over again, and like I say, the tone is set ironclad already. In fact, the first four or five paragraphs are all focused on Sam's physical difficulties of this march, and some of this is George cruelly employing delay tactics and making us wait just that little bit longer, Again, put yourself in a first-timer's shoes here. You turn the page, you see Sam's name at the top, your mind starts exploding. Sam is alive! There were survivors, he'll know what happened, and we can find out what happened, tell us what happened, but George knows how to work an audience. But a lot of that is crucial for establishing the kind of misery we are dealing with here. Now, while it's true that Sam's physicality and his relationship with his body make up a large part of his personality at this point, and people, they do point to why George himself might want to explore this particular type of character, although I've never been sure how much I'd buy into that. I don't think this is what George is going for here, because I think the point is we would all feel like this on this terrible horror march, regardless of body type or physical fitness. No matter who you are, if you've just suffered through what happened on the fist, you are sobbing, and you probably feel just as slow and heavy. In fact, George then moves the tension behind Sam in the next few paragraphs, and suddenly no one in the world would feel like they are moving fast enough. I quote, But if he stopped, he died. He knew that. They all knew that. The few who were left. They had been fifty when they fled the fist, maybe more, but some had wandered off into the snow. A few wounded had bled to death, and sometimes Sam heard shouts behind him, from the rear guard, and once an awful scream. They are behind us. They are still behind us. They are taking us one by one. And as he's got to my notes on having to look over your shoulder and not knowing even what's coming after yet we still don't actually get to see the monster we're still being uh, delayed but if that's not tone to you i don't know what is that is straight from a horror book a horror movie whatever you want to call it but from there we get another double down on sam's physical condition with a heavy emphasis on the cold there is more about the monotony and the unendingness of it all the fact that the snow just does not stop that they have not slept the constant nagging pains and we can all relate to those but just to really drag us down into this physical and psychological hell that Sam is experiencing, 
Cold is the main feature. The cold despite the clothing. Cold enough to freeze his tears. So cold that it's difficult to breathe. While some of this is undoubtedly the natural cold of the climate, I think we also know a large share is the unnatural, the smell of cold that came before and comes with the others. Obviously, all of this turns Sam to despair, and I think that's fair enough, but it's despair he directs at himself in the form of incredibly low self-esteem, etc. Again, this is nothing new to us, we knew Sam's psychology from the start, but there's something different from hearing it as Jon Snow and experiencing Sam bully himself as he walks on here. The dropping of the torch, especially, is a hard cross to bear and gets us to worry that soon Sam may not be useful enough to keep alive. And as he's got to some of my notes here about Sam falling for the first time and him starting to remember the fist and him kind of just clutching onto what he can as like he didn't die first, he did do his duty, just clutching at these straws as he as he thinks he's going to die. And it's interesting because in that short snippet of memory, he also recalls Chet just running off. And he's actually innocent enough to think that Chet's off to do his duty too, but we know that's not the case. Chet ran because he's no true brother of Sam is. Sam, the coward, acts brave while Chet slinks off and he, uh, well done for lasting longer than any other prologue character Chet. At the same time, we get a fairly mundane line in the middle of all this confusion. And by confusion, I mean Sam's little snippet of memory again of being in the camp and everyone just kind of going wild because they don't know what's going on. I quote, Then he found his pack and stuffed all his things inside. Spare small clothes and dry socks, the dragon glass arrowheads and spearhead John had given him, and the old horn too. His parchments, inks and quills, and the maps he'd been drawing, and a rock-hard garlic sausage he'd been saving since the war. All of this turns out to be majorly important. Food and spare clothes are going to be critical before long, but dragon glass and the horn? Even more so, even when we don't have the whole picture of why just yet. So like I say, at this point, Sam has fallen, and he's kind of just given up on the idea that he's going to survive. He's already thinking life is over. I guess if that's your mindset, there's no harm in finally revisiting what you were running from. And now his memories come a lot clearer and we are finally taken inside the battle on the fist for true. While the confusion and clangor of the camp is enough, you'll note that all the dogs are barking, the raves are going mental in their cages, that's a pretty clear sign of the others approaching. Things really change when Sam goes to the ring wall, as we see the whites finally make contact. There's about two pages worthy of quoting here, but I'll select just one sentence. The arrows whispered as they flew. And the word whispered is what gets me here. It just seems to say this will not be enough. And we quickly find that to be the case. A cheer goes up and then dies. And the Black Brothers realise that these really aren't wildlings. These really are something else and they really are coming for them. True to suspense, George chooses this moment to revert back to the present. Just as the whites are about to swarm over the ring wall. Again that delay tactic, that tension building of George. Luckily, it doesn't take Sam too long for his mind to return to the memory, and this time, Geo Mormont is on the scene. And like I said at the beginning, for all that I've been ragging on Geo throughout the last two books, and deservedly so, I, I maintain, he does reignite my love for him here. The old bear still has some ferocity left. He can still lead men in the most dire of circumstances. He recalls the use of fire and commands it to be used, and he even takes the time to warn Sam off and keep him safe away from the front line, knowing that Sam can play a critical part in getting information back to the wall should they all fail. And again, Mormont is now back on duty mode. But mostly, I feel pity for him here. The fight they've been planning for, that the great ranging became about, arrived, but it was the wrong enemy. Despite all his efforts, the ranging has been dragged back to its original purpose, finding out about the others. But that's far from the worst of it. No, the worst would have come when, when Geo would have clicked somewhere in those moments that he's led 300 men to their deaths. 
or a fate worse than death for many of them. He will have realised that his hubris and bad decisions have brought them all here and that ultimately he has failed in his own grand duty. Surely, at this moment, Jewel has to be convinced the wall is doomed. And yet, somehow, he pulls himself out of that spiral. He maintains a state of mind in the moment and critically, he tries to save as many of his men as possible. And I cannot overstate the mental fortitude it must have required to make this decision. Not only in terms of just keeping your wits enough about you to organise a retreat, but also doing so full in the knowledge that you are going to abandon a good percentage of your sworn brothers to the worst kind of fate. It's a terrible choice, but it's the only one that might save at least some. So Jill makes it, and I will always respect him for that. Moving on from Jill, we have Sam's account of writing out a bunch of different messages while the sounds all change around him, and we see his confidence and optimism wane as the sounds get closer, the noise of battle gets more intense, and suddenly people are dying all around him. Again, it's superb work from George by not needing to show us the exact gore and horror of the whites, but you rather just have Sam hear it getting closer and closer. It really creates the impression of the horror closing in, and lets our imagination do the worst for us. It reminds me of Sansa being stuck in the tower during Ned's fall. All noise closing in and getting worse and worse, like I say. Let me quote this one line to you. One of the Shadow Tower men came staggering out of the darkness to fall at Sam's feet. Now I think there's some significance to it being a Shadow Tower man being the one to die, because a few moments before, Sam was thinking that he felt safer beside these strong Shadow Tower men. Obviously that didn't work out too well for this one. Thrown in among all this is the presence of the undead bear, which we shouldn't ignore, because I like to believe it was the one that Chet was hunting at the book's opening. Seeing arrows sink, in, sink into flesh, in quote marks flesh, and not slow anyone down is one thing. The mind can still trick itself into thinking that they still look vaguely human, but these men are now fighting a huge bear, and a bear so rotten it is something straight out of a nightmare. I'm certain this would cause at least a few of the crows to break, but it seems the bear also has a practical use and may have turned the tide against the ring wall as its appearance coincides with the chaos becoming too much for Sam and everything breaking down until Jor actually makes his decision to go. And like I said before, the organisation and implementation of the retreat charge is nothing short of a miracle. That Jor and the other officers could retain enough of their minds to think of formations and pack horses and which slope is best really does speak to the training of the old guard and the leadership of Jor Mormont. And unfortunately, we also see that not all are so capable, with Sir Otten Withers simply kneeling in the snow before his end at the heel of a horse. Not only the planning, but the surviving. As we see, Sam could have easily been one of the poor bastards who, le who lames a horse or gets dragged off by the whites. And note the chaos is so thick here, Sam doesn't even remember getting on a horse. Indeed, Sam does get dragged off, but luckily it's one of the worst of the dangerous past. Still, we see the value of Sam and John's true friends. Ed found him back then at the end of all the, at the end of the retreat, while Gren insists on not leaving Sam in the present. It's a reminder well needed in this bleakest of chapters. Even with all this going on around them, some good still remains in the world, and these brothers are still brothers even now. Speaking of brothers and duty, we should nod to fellows like Foran Smallwood, or the name the spearman who tries to keep fighting on even though the whites got him. The old guard of the Night's Watch, for all its faults, perform more than admirably here, and Foran is the prime example. There's no hesitation when the moment comes upon him, no thinking of what's in it for him or the chances of or the chances of survival. He charges a dead bear because he has to, and dies for his bravery. In many ways, this frames the battles of the South even tighter than usual. There's no fighting for kings or houses up here, definitely no songs will be sung for foreign smallwood, miles above the wall to die on some cold hill. But he did it anyway. They all did, because they said they would. And somehow, somehow, George makes all of this secondary to the final event of the chapter, 
where the true horror is revealed, the first sighting of the real enemy since our first prologue. You can almost hear the creepy piano music as the torchbearers move past Sam and Gren and Small Paul in the present now. And the darkness grows and the cold suddenly intensifies so much that Small Paul falters and remember he's been carrying Sam. We didn't get to that, I left that bit to Aziz. And that's just after we've had our hearts warmed by learning Paul likes to look after little baby cows, so it's even worse. Gren and Small Paul still refuse to abandon Sam and run for their lives. And then suddenly, after so very long, the curtain of night is drawn back and we have our White Walker. First comes a heartbreaking sentence on Paul. Small Paul unslung the long-hafted axe strapped across his back. Why'd you hurt that horse? That was Morney's horse. Like I say, boy howdy, this one hurts. Not only does Paul somehow notice which specific horse it is, but he cares enough about it that he's willing to fight an inhuman monster made of ice for hurting it. That then gets coupled with Gren, who still doesn't run, charging as if he were some famous knight and not a farm boy. I have all the feels for this pair, I can tell you. As Paul dies, there is an extended passage, all of it worth quoting, with some genuinely beautiful writing about armour rippling as the, others, as the other moves and the ice sword swinging like the wind. It is horror made beautiful by George's writing. Luckily, Sam doesn't get distracted, and anyone could be forgiven for reading so fast at this point they miss that it's Paul's death that actually disarms the other. For here we have what is likely the defining moment in Samuel Tarley's life. He focuses on all that hate that has been directed at him his whole life, all the people that have called him craven. Despite the fact he's incredibly afraid at this moment, he moves, and we have to hear the echo of Ned's words to Bran here. Critically, he makes his move in the same instant as he thinks of John, the first man to ever suggest that Sam wasn't a craven. Thus, Sam moves, Sam kills the other, and if we are looking at this moment in a potentially historic context, humanity discovers what can kill an other, or even that they can be killed at all. By the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, we might be looking back on this moment with even more significance. And it all sends me right back to the Game of Thrones prologue, where Sir Waymar Royce, he of sword skill and great training, bravely invited an other to dance. It didn't end well for him, but he made the decision all the same. Sam doesn't dance with the other, his attempt is not meant to be beautiful or aesthetic or easy, it's an ugly struggle, but he gets it done. And I think Aziz might have got to this note, but I'm going to repeat it for you anyway, because it's, it's just a, a real nice capper to this, this chapter here in this episode. Let me quote, Look there, through the trees, pink light, dawn Sam, dawn, that must be east, if we head that way we should catch Mormont. If you say, Sam kicked his left foot against a tree to knock off all the snow, then the right, I'll try. Grimacing, he took a step, I'll try hard, and then another. And again, I apologise if I'm repeating Aziz here, but I, I can't resist. Because what this says to me is even with the most horrific nights suffered by anyone in centuries, hope comes at the end, there is a dawn, there is a dream of spring, but only if you keep going. Thus, the chapter ends as it began, with Samuel Tarley continuing to take difficult step after difficult step again and again and again, no matter how hard it is, because, the, because that's the only way to get to that far-off dawn. And before I say goodbye, let's just give some real, true props to Gren for staying with Sam before the other, with the other, and again, for making his own charge, armed with only a torch. This man is not, near, is not hailed as a hero nearly as much as he should be, it is a massive Gren moment just as much as it is a Sam moment. And we should be happy that he's there for him. Whew, like, so like I say, that was a bit of a doozy, wasn't it? This, that Sam chapter really does eclipse the others for today. It is so important, obviously, in Sam's mind. But in terms of the Night's Watch, in, time, in terms of the plight for the North, 
important for the world is the whole story wrapped up it's such an important chapter considering how long it's been since the prologue and we get so few of these i know it's easy to get mixed up with the show where in the later seasons the white walkers and the whites they're here there here there and everywhere that's not the case in the books so we should do well to remember how valuable these are i'm sure i've taken up enough of your time this week thank you so much for listening like i say if you would love to subscribe to rate maybe look at our patron or just get in touch any of those are fine options we'd love to talk to you don't forget this week's pair pick will be varus versus littlefinger i'll have a poll up on twitter make sure you find it vote and start arguing about it and again thank you to indeep geek for having me on last week please go and look at his youtube channel don't do it if you've got work or anything to do because there will be a long time you spend at it Take a look, as I'm sure you always do, History of Westeros, A Girl's Gone Canon, Radio Westeros, Put Not A Cast, You Know All The People, Davos Fingers, don't forget them all and just enjoy yourselves. Have a good week, everybody. Oh, before I go, let me tell you very quickly, next week, just four chapters, let me tell you them here, it is Tyrion Free, that's the one where uh, some marriage deals get made, Catelyn Free, Goodbye Rickard, Jamie Free, Goodbye Hand, and Aya Four one of the ghost of high heart so that's going to be a real interesting chapter i'm sure aziz will lap up thank you very much everybody for joining me on the other faces here this dog needs to go for a walk i'm headed out into the it's getting sunnier morning of england we'll see you next time bye everyone <laughs>